everybody. I hope you're all well this morning and uh, enjoying the onset of winter. It's a depressing day for me. It was the first time that I had to put a thermal on. It's never a good time of the year. Okay, let's uh, just bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for this moment and time when we can intently peer into your word. Lord, I pray that you would open that word up to us so that we would understand it and that your Holy Spirit would help us to live it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our text today is Ephesians 4 and verse 32. So if you could please turn there now. As we meet here today, it's likely, well I hope it's more than likely, that we have listened to a great many sermons. And some of us will have literally heard thousands of the things, and here today we have another one. And yet despite the enormous amount of helpful information contained in them, delivered of course in the most engaging and entertaining style, the thing is that we are still often left wondering how we are supposed to behave as Christians. Should we be like this happy couple? Or perhaps this lady here? Or maybe somewhere in the middle? Ever wondered about that? Well, I have happy news for you today because Paul is going to help us out on that question with some not terribly difficult to understand advice right here in Ephesians 32. Are you ready? Do you have your pens poised? Good. It reads, And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Now if you recall, the verse before this is all about the things that we should stop doing. Bitterness, wrath, anger, clamour and so on. But it's no good just taking those away and leaving a void, is it? You take something away, well, there's a space that's left and the space must be filled with something else, which hopefully is better. So here in verse 32 we have a list of these fine new character fillers. And none of them are very complicated, are they? Be kind, have a tender heart and forgive one another. Maybe I should just stop there since we all know what we should be doing. You know, it's very disappointing that I can see some of you would like me to stop there. Unfortunately, however appealing the thought of a micro-sermon might be for all of us, including myself, the fact is that we do need to be diligent to explore this passage carefully. The Holy Spirit has put it here for a purpose, and we must be sure that we have gained all we can. So here goes. Now, I've used the New King James Version here in my text, which you see up here, and it just uses this word be, and be kind to one another, and that's the action word in the instruction, in the instruction, be kind, be tender hearted, be forgiving, and that makes it sound very easy. I'm really angry today, but instead I'll just instantaneously be kind, just like that. Well, it doesn't usually work, does it? And the worst thing, of course, is that little B word makes it look so easy. Just a teeny tiny little two letters. 
ought to be really simple to master in a few minutes, and then we can move on to something more complicated. I'm here, Lord. Challenge me. No. It isn't that easy, as we all know. Because we're continually dragged back by that old man, the flesh, so that we fail and fail and fail again. The preacher says we ought to be this way or that way, but we just can't seem to make those changes stick. And so we become disheartened and have thoughts of giving up on this pointless Christian business because it's just a waste of time. I can't do it. And we may start to think that because we mess up that God cannot possibly want or use us. None of that is true. And please, if you are in that space, don't give up. Remember that this book was written in Greek. And that translation from a foreign language into English is a fiendishly difficult art. The scholars do do their very best to tease the meaning out and phrase things so that modern readers will understand them. But often, a little something is lost along the way. And, And here, in this passage, I think it's in this little word, be. If we look at some other translations, like the Amplified Bible and Wust's Expanded Translation, we'll find these very helpful insights. Okay, So if we look at the Amplified Bible, it says, and become useful and helpful and kind to one another. And then Wust says, and be becoming kind to one another. Be becoming That's a statement about a continuous process, isn't it? Not an instantaneous moment of transformation. To be becoming is a state of mind and deliberate lifestyle that is accepting of failures and encouraging to keep trying again and again. Friends, let's be clear. There are only a couple of things that will or can happen to us instantaneously in our Christian walk. The first and the most important one is justification. That instant where God crosses out the sin of the debt of sin on his ledger and accepts us as his child, fresh and new, clean and spotless. And the other is something we may never see or perhaps we might just not even notice. And that is when God exercises his sovereign power in a miracle. He might heal us or he might heal others. He might change our circumstance for our safety. And these things can happen outside time without even a microsecond passing. But the other stuff, the becoming like Christ takes time. So let us take heart here. The Lord understands that we are a work in progress as far as sanctification is concerned. He has a plan and he will definitely help it along until it is exactly as he intended. And that's his promise in Scripture. You've messed up in something? Don't despair. Don't give up. Be becoming. Persevere. Go to God and confess. Repent and carry on. What a marvelous and precious gift our Lord gives us through his patience. Right, now that we have closely examined that little word be, we should go on to have a look at the rest of the verse because it's a most reasonable question to ask what we should be becoming. What should we be becoming? The first goal that Paul chooses is kindness. 
Christians should be known for being kind. And what does that mean? Does it mean never kicking the dog and always being prepared to pop a gold coin into the poppy day box? Well, it's true that those are forms of kindness, but I'd say that Paul probably has something more profound in mind. The Greek word that he uses is krestos, and its first uses were to talk about a thing being useful, good, suitable and proper. For example, it was used to describe a nice wine that was mild and pleasant to drink. But as time went by, as these things do, the word began to have a bit of a broader meaning, including moral excellence and perfection, in which inner greatness is linked with genuine goodness of heart towards everyone. Genuine goodness of heart towards everyone. Inner greatness. If you stop and think about that description, it shouldn't be surprising to find that Christos is often used in both the Old and New Testaments in connection with the character of God. And here's some typical examples. Psalm 34.8 O taste and see that the Lord is good. And that's that word Christos again. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. And then in the New Testament, Luke 6.35 But love your enemies, do good, and lend, hoping for nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind, Christos, to the thankful, sorry, to the unthankful and evil. Now since it is true that God himself is described as being kind using this same term, it gives us a pointer towards the standard of kindness that we are being encouraged to show. If it is godly kindness that's intended, then it's clearly well beyond not kicking the dog and helping old ladies across the road. It could be said, though, that these are merely a good start, provided that we don't get them mixed up. We shouldn't be kicking old ladies and helping dogs across the road. So our aim, then, is not to be quite good or averagely kind, but outstandingly and notably so, like God. This is a kindness that is caring and considerate and careful, that seeks to fulfill the command that we love our neighbour as ourselves. And most importantly, it must be kindness in action, because merely thinking kindly thoughts is useless. True kindness only finds its meaning when its intent is made real with our hands. Now the size of God's kindness is something that we ought to understand very personally. And this verse that we've just read in Luke in particular is very close to home for us because it illustrates the true depth of God's kindness. Because we were unthankful and evil too before we were saved. And yet God was immeasurably kind to us in the gift of Jesus as Saviour. Now just just try to imagine yourself in God's position. You've created everything. Your power is virtually limitless. You ask the humans that you've made to obey a few simple rules. And what happens virtually the moment you turn your back? They disobey. Remember now that you're God. 
So that's not something that just stirs mild irritation for you. It's major. It's an epic fail, as we might say today, because you are the standard for right and wrong. It's like acid in your eye. You hate it. So you must punish this disobedience and thus the man and the woman are cast out of the perfect garden that you have made for them to begin a life of struggle and worse, separation from you. And that's where it would probably end in a human relationship because if we make a thing and it fails us, we're very quick to discard it without further thought. But this is God. In the same measure that he is fierce and judging, he is also kind and loving too. And so he made a way for rescue at his own cost. For there was no way at all that humans could ever settle that debt. And we should be clear that this isn't like earthly justice where you break the law, you're sentenced and you go to prison and then after a period you are released having been judged to have discharged your debt to society. It isn't like that. No amount of good works will ever get you past St. Peter. And it should be noted that there are two theological nonsenses in that commonly held belief. So God chose to pay that debt from his own pocket out of his kindness and his love. Now you might say, big deal. If it is, as you say, that God created everything with just a word, then it wouldn't have been any hardship at all for him to stump up with any amount of riches. He could just bring it into being. But you see, he didn't pay with anything that could be made. He paid with what was eternal, the only thing that was that way. He paid with himself. Since death was the proper punishment for mankind's disobedience, a death was provided. Jesus, God's own Son, went to the cross to die instead of you and me. And in doing so, he paid the penalty once and for all that hung over every human's head. And this was the great size of God's kindness. We offended, but he paid. We did not deserve it. He did not need to do it. But he paid. What did he pay for? Well, he paid for the restoration of the relationship that he had designed and intended. He paid so that during life on this earth we would have his ear and his help. And after death we would have eternal life with him in a place that does not know the suffering and pain of mortal life. But please don't believe that it's finished there, that it's all okay, and you can carry on your life exactly as you always have, because, well, it's all been sorted, hasn't it? Because although God's salvation is a gift, it must be properly received. And that means two things, repentance and resolve. Repentance literally means to change direction, to acknowledge our sin, to apologize to God and to commit to trying not to do them again. 
Resolve means to make our walk in that new direction one that follows only Christ, that tries its very hardest to live life according to his standards. This is what it means to become a Christian. It isn't all about good deeds or giving to the poor, although these are appropriate things for a Christian to do. But on their own, well, I'm afraid they just don't cut it. Only repentance and resolve throughout life will be the right response to God's great act of love. So, has God's kindness touched you? Have you repented of your sins and resolved to follow Jesus? If you haven't, well, I'll think about it. Take your time, because tomorrow will be fine, because we all know exactly what's going to happen tomorrow, don't we? It makes you think, doesn't it? And if it makes you think that you would like to change your life, well, I encourage you to come and talk to me or to one of the elders or to a Christian that you know just as soon as you can because it will be the most important decision that you ever make. Let's move on. Our text here says that we should be kind to one another and that's our fellow Christians, by the way. Well, why should we be particularly kind to one another? I found a little illustration that I think explains it perfectly. Now, there were some things that I really enjoyed at high school, but one of the things that absolutely failed to excite me in biology classes was a thing named classification. What's that? Well, most of us will know that humans are formally called Homo sapiens. And actually, the complete description is much, much longer and very boring. And it looks like this. Imagine having to remember, what's your name? It's all of that. Well, I thought it was very boring, and so I thought a lot of time in my biology classes daydreaming. But there was one name that I knew by heart, and it actually had absolutely nothing to do with my biology teacher. It was Sequoia Sempervirens. And this is the fancy Latin name for the Californian redwood. And that's a tree that's generally very well known because it's amongst the tallest trees on earth. Some of them are nearly 115 meters high. And while I was doing some research for this, I was interested to find that we have some right here in New Zealand. And you can go and visit them at the Whakarewa Rewa Forest in Rotorua. And apparently they grow better here than they do back in California because it's much wetter. And that's a piece of useless information. Anyway, the reason that I knew that name and I still remember it is because my grandfather, who owned a plant nursery, decided to grow one, despite the climate where he lived not really being that good for the purpose. And I often wonder if it's still growing there near Kodoma in Zimbabwe and people wonder what it is. And when you think about a tree 115 metres tall, that's enormous, isn't it? You'd expect that to hold up a tree that size there would be some kind of giant root that thrust deep into the earth as an anchor. 
But it turns out that that's not true. This tree has roots that are shallow and widespreading. And the other thing that we need to know about these trees is that they don't grow as single sentinels. They grow together in forests with those root systems reaching out in all directions to capture the greatest amount of surface moisture. And in doing so, they meet and they intertwine with roots from fellow trees so that they provide support for each other against storms. That's why they grow in clusters. And that's what one another means. Be kind to one another so that we can stand together no matter what life throws at us. The next action that Paul calls us to is to be tender-hearted. Now here's the Greek. And I'm not even going to try to pronounce it, but I suspect it would sound appropriately like something soft and wet being thrown against a wall. And here's the slightly scary thing, given that sound, because it literally means having strong, healthy bowels. Hmm. Now I must hasten to add to you that we're not going to go in a laboratorial direction because that would not be appropriate at this moment. Now we must remember that although the Greeks were very knowledgeable by the standards of their times, they did not yet have the level of general knowledge about the working of the human body that we do today. They believed that the inward organs were the seat of emotion and intention. And knowing what we do, that might sound a little bit ridiculous now, but I think we all know that strong feelings do seem to feel as they come from somewhere down here rather than just up here. So, who knows, maybe they weren't so far off the mark. So what we should understand from this connection to the bowels is not some slimy mess, but it's a, it's a description of someone who in their innermost being, their true core, is compassionate, easily or quickly moved to love or pity or sorrow, and not for themselves, it describes someone who has these tender feelings for someone else. These are deep emotions, strong and connected to us, not those superficial little shadows that often flit across our minds and then are dismissed as being inconvenient or impractical or demeaning. Now, I've just used the word moved here, and that's important too because, once again, it illustrates the importance of this tender heart being useless without tender actions that follow. And to illustrate, I've made up this little story with some M's about movement. I may be moved to hear that you have lost your job, but if I do not then move over to your house with a meal and perhaps move my hand into my pocket to offer a few bucks as a help, then my mention of mental movement becomes merely mental musings without motion. Moot and mute. <laughs> and I did make that by myself. Well, I have to thank the Holy Spirit, really. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, my family in Christ, our relationship here is not intended to be one for Sundays only. The Lord wants his people to be just that, 
people, plural, and not persons, singular. The truth is that we cope best with life's struggles like that forest with our roots intertwined. And yet we often continue to insist on a peculiar madness which says that to share difficulties shows weakness or is an unnecessary burden on others. And this is why we need to work on this matter of tender-heartedness. We might not share our troubles, but they will probably be shown in what we say and what we do. So to be tender-hearted means to not let those signs go by when we see them, but with grace and tact to come alongside the sufferer and ease their burden in any way that we can. And that might not always be easy because it will always call for some level of personal inconvenience, even if it is just time from our busy lives. And yet this is our duty. We are commanded to love others as ourselves. If we call ourselves Christians, you take only from Christ's sacrifice and not of his many practical examples of tender-heartedness, then we have failed to understand what it really means to be a Christian. We're just a shadow of what we ought to be. And we certainly won't fulfill the chief purpose of man, which is to glorify God by showing to the world around us what a relationship with him is supposed to look like. I've said many, many times from this pulpit that what comes in must come out. And I'm going to say it many times again. If Jesus has truly come into us, then Jesus must show out. Be tender-hearted to one another. The final section of our text today concerns a matter that we all struggle with at one time or another, and that is forgiveness. Christians rub up against Christians and non-Christians, for that matter, in just the same way as every human. We get angry, we get offended, and we get hurt, and we hang on to those feelings with every intention of repaying them with interest just as soon as the opportunity comes along. And we hear lines like, Don't get mad! Get even. And I found a great one from Muhammad Ali. You kill my dog, you better hide your cat. And we love them. Yeah, full on, hard case. These notions of getting one up are pleasurable. And so we like and believe them. And we look for ways to make them come true. And yet, it's a weird thing. Let's just set the argument of being a Christian aside for a moment. Because if we look into it, we'll find that this advice doesn't even represent at all the collective wisdom of humanity. When I started to think around the subject of forgiveness, the first word that came to my mind was its opposite, actually, just revenge. So I had a look online for quotations on the subject and the first site that I went to, goodreads.com, had around 415 of them, just on the matter of revenge. And it's true that some of them are 
for it, like that Muhammad Ali one I've just mentioned above. However, the greatest number of them counsel against revenge. Here's a few. You may know some of them. An eye for an eye and the whole world would be blind. I only suggest to you, will you dwell on killing this man? You wish for revenge? If you do, then he has already killed you by slow poison. So let it go. Why waste your time? His life will see to his death. If you spend your time hoping someone will suffer the consequences for what they did to your heart, then you're allowing them to hurt you a second time in your mind. So humans do know and recognize the deep value of forgiveness. Yet, they exalt its opposite, revenge. And that's a kind of madness. Here's a piece of useless information. The strongest acid known to man is called fluoroantimonic acid. Well, how strong is it? Well, it's quite strong really. In fact, it is 2 to the power of 1019 times, and that's a 2 followed by 1019 zeros, which looks like this. And I, I'm pretty sure that I actually did get 1019 zeros there. Okay? It's a very large number. And it's that much more powerful than sulfuric acid. It's so powerful that you can't store it in a bottle because it eats through the glass. If you spilt some on the floor and you decided to wash it away with water, well, it explodes. And when it's reacting with pretty much anything, it gives off poisonous fumes that will kill anyone in the room. Potent stuff. I tell you, revenge is worse than this acid in every way. Because acid just eats away things that can be seen and touched, things that are made. But revenge, hatred, bitterness, all these things that we feed when we do not forgive, well, these things eat away things of the spirit. Things that are intended by God to be beautiful in eternity. Make no error. The glamorous view of revenge that is promoted to us is a lie and it is a lie that leads to a life of misery and eternal death. Now, I could tell you all the stuff about how unforgiveness in its various forms can mess up your blood pressure and other parts of your body and make you physically sick. I could quote reams of material on what bitterness and resentment does to the mind. And I'm pretty sure that although the Greeks didn't have the standard of medicine we have today, that they knew at that time that these were the effects of unforgiveness. But Paul doesn't waste any time on these arguments. He cuts straight to the chase when he tells us that we ought to be forgiving. He says, forgive one another. Why? Because God in Christ forgave you. He 
If you sat down one day and tried to add up all the sins that you committed in your life and write them down in a book, how many volumes do you think there'd be? One or two? A shelf full? Do you think you could fill a room? Or maybe some of us could fill a library? Only you could say. And that's only the ones you can think about because for sure there's plenty you've forgotten and there's a whole bunch that you didn't even know that you'd done. The offence that each and every one of us has caused to God is its enormous. If any one of us was to experience even one thousandth of it, we would be wounded and outraged beyond reason. We would be livid, furious. And yet... Yet through Jesus, God has completely forgiven us. Completely. Not conditionally. Not holding any particularly juicy sins back for the sake of a future argument. But fully and finally as though they had never happened. The words to describe this, they just aren't there, are they? No amount of praise and thanksgiving can ever be enough. So, in the face of such generosity, how can any of us not be moved to be similarly, similarly forgiving to those around us? It's just that simple. At the beginning of the sermon, I asked the question, what should a Christian look like? And I showed you those two pictures. Well, here's the answer. Actually, it doesn't matter. We may be quiet and reflective in nature, or we may be in your face and out there. That woke you up. <laughs> it makes no difference to whether we can be called followers of Christ. In fact, you know, God made us like that. He made us special and unique individuals. We're not clones stamped out identically on some cosmic conveyor belt. But what is extremely important, however, is that in all we say and do, however our character does it, we are being, becoming kind and tender-hearted and forgiving. This is for our good and for God's glory. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you know how each one of us is in our hearts, how we struggle moment by moment with the flesh. And Lord, Lord, you have a different way for us, a way that shows out your character to the world, 
And I pray that through your Holy Spirit, we would learn to find that goodness in us. That we would work on being becoming kind and tender-hearted and forgiving. And that the world would see these things and know that you are a good God and turn to you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.